We are back. You're listening to Roadmap to Heaven here on Covenant Network, and we have begun a period of Eucharistic revival here in the United States. We've been talking about that for the last few weeks, and I could think of no one better to speak with about our belief in our Lord's presence in the Eucharist than Dr. Scott Hahn, a professor, the director and, and president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, author. The, the list goes on and on, but I know you listeners are familiar with Dr. Hahn. If for no other reason, you hear him on our airwaves. So, Dr. Scott Hahn, it is so good to have you with us this morning. It's great to be with you, Adam. Thanks for the invitation. I hope you don't mind. I'm in my backyard. This is just such a gorgeous day. I thought this would be the best place. If it gets a little noisy, I'll go inside. But uh, this is an amazing place for me to be talking about the presence of our Lord. I I have no issues with that, Dr. Hahn. I think that God has revealed so much of himself in the beauty of creation that if we can soak it in in the backyard, I'm just disappointed it's radio and we can't see the lovely view that you have. (laughs) Oh, it's a gorgeous view of the Ohio River. Oh, uh, that sounds amazing. Dr. Hahn, we are talking about the Eucharist this week. We are talking about our Lord's presence in the Blessed Sacrament. And we have had so many discussions this year as we've heard the bishops talk about Eucharistic coherence and Eucharistic revival. But what we have not done is gone back to just a refresher of what do Catholics believe about the Eucharist? Because we often say we don't believe in a symbol We don't believe in just a a gesture, a commemorative action, that we're recreating the Last Supper, which is somewhat true, somewhat not, but there's so much more to it than symbolism or just recreating an event. So where do you start when you speak with Catholics about our Lord's presence in the Eucharist? Well, we ought to ask the question, where does our Lord start? Because, you know, here I am under the beautiful blue skies, and we start with creation, as our Lord did. I'm finishing up a book on holiness. Holy is his name. And what I do in that book is what I've done in my life, and that is discover the presence of God is already planted like a seed in all of creation, the heavens and the earth, but especially in the symbolism of the seventh day. Whether or not it's telling us how much clock time it took for God to make the world, the point of the seventh day is the Sabbath, and the significance of the Sabbath is the covenant. And so God has already inscribed into time there at the beginning of Genesis what it is that he has in view for us at the end of time, and that is a rest. But more than just a rest, it's the only time the word holiness occurs in all of Genesis. He sanctified, he hallowed the seventh day. Genesis 2, verse 3. And it's significant because it shows us that the plan of God is our holiness in his presence. But it also shows us that creation does not suffice because our first parents failed. And so when you look at the 50 chapters of Genesis and discover that the word holiness doesn't occur ever again in that book, then you're asking yourself why. Well, because our first parents committed original sin. And so we move from the Sabbath at the beginning of Genesis to the sign of God's presence that is there at the burning bush at the beginning of Exodus, because there's an explosion of God's holy presence to Moses and Israel. I think 98 times the word holiness occurs in Exodus. And so there you have something more than just little trinkets of the the bread and the wine of Melchizedek. I mean, there are signs that point forward to the Holy Eucharist, even in Genesis, and other ones too. But in Exodus, what you have is the tabernacle, 
as the culmination of the exodus of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. The presence of God now dwelling, not just in the Sabbath in time, but in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold, and in the high priest who has God's holy name on his forehead, and standing in the midst of his people, along with the bread of the presence. Literally, the bread of the panim in Hebrew is the bread of the face. And so God is advancing the program whereby he wants to make himself present to his people in Exodus in a way that we barely notice. Well, obviously, we don't have time to go throughout the entire Old Testament, but I, I wanted to indicate how in creation we have it, how in the beginning of salvation we find it, and then press fast forward because what is it that made the Exodus possible was, of course, the Passover. The lamb, the male lamb without blemish, without broken bones, slaughtered, the blood was sprinkled, and then the lamb was consumed as the climax of the Passover in the communion that brought Israel out of bondage and into the presence of God at Mount Sinai. And all of that, of course, points to all of this. Because Jesus is the new Moses. He is the Lamb of God. He brings in a new covenant, a new exodus, and a new Passover. And what do we call it? The Eucharist. What does Jesus call it? In Luke 22.20, Jesus calls the Eucharist the new covenant, the New Testament. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Kine diatheke in the Greek is novum testamentum in the Latin. The only time Jesus ever uses that phrase, the new covenant, is when he's instituting the Eucharist, when he's giving to us something more than a sign or a symbol, when he's giving to us nothing less than his own body and blood. And of course, this is sound doctrine, but it's more than religious rhetoric. It's more than Catholic talking points. Because if Jesus only utters that phrase, the New Testament, on a one occasion, when he's instituting the Eucharist, then the takeaway, the obvious conclusion that we've got to draw is that for Jesus, the New Testament was the Blessed Sacrament. Long before it became a doctrine, he doesn't say, write this in remembrance of me. He says, do this, and while we call this the Eucharist, that term wasn't employed until the final third of the first century. The term that Jesus applies to it is the New Testament, the New Covenant. So I discovered after more than 10 years of being an evangelical Christian, a Protestant, a New Testament Christian, that's all I ever wanted to be, but to be consistent as a New Testament Christian, I realized I'm going to have to become a Eucharistic Catholic, because the New Testament indeed is a sacrament before it becomes a document, according to the document, and that doesn't devalue the document. It enables you to get much more out of sacred scripture in general. But you also see on that occasion, when Jesus is instituting the New Testament, he's celebrating the Old Testament, the Passover, one last time fulfilling it as the Lamb of God, as the High Priest, as the Tabernacle, as His body and blood are offered. And obviously, I could go on and on and on, but here we can see how the New Testament is concealed in the Old, and the Old is revealed and fulfilled in the New, but it goes all the way back beyond Exodus into creation, when God the Creator revealed His purpose in establishing a covenant symbolized by the seventh day, and even though the first Adam fails to communicate that and forfeits himself, nevertheless the new Adam and the new Eve, the Blessed Virgin, usher in a new creation through the new covenant. And the Eucharist is this abiding presence, the sacred mystery of Christ's resurrected body, blood, soul, and divinity. And I think that's just a great place to start. That is a cornerstone, perhaps even a, a foundation on which we can build our faith, but also not just our 
belief system, but our life, and not just my life and yours, but our families, and not just our households, but our parishes and our dioceses, our towns, our cities, our states, and our country. And so I believe this is why the Holy Spirit is behind the project that the bishops have launched in terms of renewing our Eucharistic faith and devotion. I think that's wonderful, and I I agree it is a wonderful starting place for us today. And I know we have more to say on the subject, but this is a good time for us to take a break here, and we will continue our conversation with Dr. Scott Hahn on the Blessed Sacrament and the Eucharist as this week continues. Dr. Hahn, I look forward to the next part of our conversation. I do too, Adam. Thank you so much for your virtual hospitality. Thank you. We will be back right after this. We are back. You're listening to Roadmap to Heaven, and this week we are talking with Dr. Scott Hahn about Eucharistic revival. And yesterday we began not with what Dr. Hahn says the Eucharist is, but but what our Lord himself said the Eucharist is, a new covenant, a new testament that we see prefigured and foreshadowed going all the way back to the book of Genesis. So, Dr. Hahn, it's good to have you back with us today, and I'm excited to know where we go next Well, Adam, I want to thank you again for the invitation. It's so much fun to get together and to discuss the thing that is the single most precious and powerful gift, and that is the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. Well, as you mentioned, by way of summary, we laid the foundation in our previous conversation, going all the way back to creation, the seventh day, the Sabbath, the sign of God's covenant, and then how he renewed and fulfilled that covenant in the Exodus, especially through the Passover of the Lamb. And then we could see that abiding presence there in the tabernacle and in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, but also the bread of the presence, the bread of the face, all of which anticipates, of course, and prefigures the fulfillment that Christ ushers in with the New Covenant. We concluded our time by focusing upon the only occasion where Jesus ever uttered that expression that we're so familiar with, the New Covenant, the New Testament, kind idea, theke, novum testamentum, you know, it's potato, potato. But the conclusion that we reached was that the New Testament was a sacrament before it became a document according to the document. And so if you want to be a New Testament Christian, you've really got to be a Eucharistic Catholic and renew your devotion to our Lord in the New Testament, in the Eucharist. And so we see how it is that the New Testament is not just made with Christ as the mediator, he himself is the New Covenant, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Now, what is the takeaway from this point on? Well, I would say that when we look more closely at Holy Thursday in the upper room to see what he's doing in celebrating the Passover one last time, he's fulfilling it as the Lamb of God, not simply as an irrational animal whose throat is slashed and then whose blood is drained so that his carcass can be burned, and then roasted and eaten by the sacrificial participants in the Old Covenant Passover. No. But all of that foreshadows what Christ does, not only on Holy Thursday in the Upper Room, but it's what illuminates the mystery of what happens the next day at Calvary, on Good Friday. Because we all, as Christians in the 21st century, profess the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but even more, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross at Calvary. And yet what we don't realize, at least what I didn't realize as an evangelical Protestant in the process of becoming a Catholic, is what all of us profess in the 21st century is precisely what nobody could have possibly recognized back in the first century 
if you had been standing there at Calvary at the foot of the cross on Good Friday, you would not have possibly described a sacrifice. Because as devout Jews, we would know that a sacrifice can only take place in the Jerusalem temple on top of an altar with a priest standing by from the tribe of Levi, whereas Jesus is crucified outside the walls of the city, far from the temple with no altars there. So what we would see, what we would recount, would not be a sacrifice, but a Roman execution, and a brutal and bloody one at that. So the question is, how in the world did a Roman execution get turned into a sacrifice and one so holy that it retired the animals that were offered inside the Jerusalem temple. And the only way to find the answer is, as I found it, was by reading the Church Fathers kept pointing back to St. Paul. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed, therefore let us celebrate the feast, let us keep the feast. And the feast, of course, is the new Passover, or the Eucharist, as he goes on, to explain it in the subsequent chapters there in 1 Corinthians. So what we see, then, is that the Eucharist has to be more than the Last Supper. If the Eucharist is just a meal on Thursday, then Calvary is just an execution on Friday. But if the Eucharist is where the sacrifice of the New Covenant begins, then the Lamb is laying down his life by offering himself up in the Eucharist. But that initiation is only complete. The sacrifice is initiated on Thursday, but consummated on Friday, when in fact his body is given up, when in fact his blood is poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins, and that is the blood of the covenant. As we hear in Exodus 24, verse 8, so we also hear in the Gospels. We also hear that it's the blood of the new covenant fulfilling Jeremiah 31, 31. And so, I mean, in a certain sense, we're off to the races, because what we can see is what we call the Paschal Mystery. That Holy Thursday is what transforms Good Friday from an execution into the consummation of the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb. But then Easter Sunday transforms that sacrifice into what we call the Blessed Sacrament, into what we call the Holy Eucharist. This is why he in a certain sense, withheld his own identity to Clopas and his companion as they walked together for hours and hours on Easter Sunday. These two disciples are accompanied by the resurrected Lord, but they don't recognize him until what? Well, their hearts were burning within them as he opened the Scriptures, but only after they arrive at Emmaus, they're at the table, he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them, and that is the moment of disclosure the revelation of Christ, the resurrected one. And so, as their eyes are open in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread, suddenly he disappears, not because he's playing hide-and-go-seek, but because he brings their faith like he wants to bring our faith, to recognize that in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread, we have nothing less than the resurrected body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Yes, it's the same body that was in the upper room on Holy Thursday. Yes, it's the same body that was sacrificed on the cross, there on Good Friday. Yes, it's the same body that was buried in the tomb on Holy Saturday. But more precisely, what we've got to see through the eyes of faith is that the Eucharistic body of Christ is that body which is resurrected, and now ascended into heaven, and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The creed that we profess is the preparation to celebrate the Holy Eucharist, so after we've read from the Old Testament and the Gospel to show how it's fulfilled, we realize the fulfillment of the Old Covenant by Christ didn't end in the first century. It's going on in the 21st century, and especially in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, 
where every Sunday is Easter, a little Easter, as the fathers would call it. And in the Blessed Sacrament, we have the Paschal Mystery. But you can see the continuum, the inseparable connection, that as I said, if the Eucharist is just a meal, then Calvary is just an execution. But if the Eucharist is where the sacrifice was initiated, then of course Calvary is where that sacrifice is consummated. And now with the resurrection and the ascension, our high priest is in heaven offering his own glorified humanity, and down here on earth through the power of the Spirit empowering our priests, including my son, Father Jeremiah, as of 13 months ago, we are now uniting heaven and earth. The angels and the saints above and the sinners and the parishioners that are surrounding us are all united in one sacred mystery, the Paschal Mystery. And I mean, it's going to take a lifetime and then so to assimilate all of this. But I mean, what is more important than assimilating the Paschal Mystery? The unveiling of the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The revelation of why did the Father send the Son to give us the Holy Spirit? Why does it take three eternal divine persons to save one human person like the measly likes of me? Because it's not just forgiving us of sin. It's empowering us to share what family members share, flesh and blood. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, a lifetime is not enough to uh, really contemplate and assimilate all of these mysteries. But what would you prefer to do? Focus on the stock market? On Washington politics? You know, on you know the rise of corruption and that sort of thing. All of these matter, but what matters much more is the real presence of the resurrected body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. It's almost too good to be true, but it's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the Catholic gospel truth. And so, Adam, that's why I am so grateful, not only for our conversation in this interview, but also for this unique opportunity that we have in these three years to devote ourselves as the Catholic Church in the United States, to the truth of God's Word, but not only the Word inspirated in Scripture, but the Word that is incarnated in Jesus Christ, who is present to us. So in every Mass, we're going to hear the Word inspirated, the promises of the old fulfilled in the Gospel of the New, but that fulfillment is going to continue as we move from the liturgy of the Word into the liturgy of the Eucharist, where we move from the Word that is inspirated in Scripture to the Word that is incarnated in Jesus Christ, our Savior, the firstborn brother among many, many siblings, all of us who are called home to heaven, where we will behold the face of God the Father and our Savior too. Dr. Hahn, this has been a, a wonderful way of looking at this today, and I love that you asked the question about what better thing could we do than to contemplate this mystery, this inexhaustible mystery, because... After many years of working in parish ministry, and as our listeners know, I, I worked in parish music ministry, directing the choirs and playing the organ, and many triduums spent focusing on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. Today, with new ears, I am hearing how closely these three are in a, related in a new way, that if our Lord says on Holy Thursday, this is my body given up for you, but does not actually give up his body, 
in the sacrifice on the cross. It's just an empty word on Holy Thursday. And, and I love that term that you have used and others have used, that Good Friday on the cross consummates the sacrifice. It's such a beautiful term. But then without the resurrection on Easter Sunday, we're left to wonder, well, was the sacrifice even effective? Was it worth it? Did it actually conquer sin and death? But we know and believe that it did and that our Lord's Paschal sacrifice is victorious because of the resurrection. And so I'm excited now. This is going to be on my mind for the rest of the day. And I want to thank you, if nothing else, that particular insight today. And I look forward to continuing our conversation on the Blessed Sacrament as we move throughout the week. Dr. Scott Hahn, thank you so much. Oh, you are so welcome, Adam. I look forward to it as well. We are back. You're listening to Roadmap to Heaven. This week, we continue our conversations with Dr. Scott Hahn as we begin this three-year process of Eucharistic revival. And if you missed the first two days, here's the summary. Our Lord gives us the Blessed Sacrament, himself in the Eucharist, and calls it the New Covenant. That was day one. We talked about the Old Testament, how the Old Testament shows us what is coming in the New Testament. And then our Lord clearly says, I am the New Covenant. Yesterday we were talking about the Paschal Sacrifice and how closely Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday are related, and that without this being a sacrifice, it's just a meal and an execution and nothing more. And Dr. Han, you beautifully illuminated components of the Paschal mystery for us yesterday. So I just want to turn it over to you and see where we're going to go today. Well, Adam, what I was thinking of was the name of your show, Roadmap to Heaven, because what better descriptive term could we use for sacred scripture? Because it really is a roadmap to heaven. And so it's important to study it and to understand it. But you know, there's an old saying that map is not terrain, you know, and so the map might be flat, but the terrain might be mountainous. And so it's not enough to study the map. It's not enough to memorize the map, just like it's not enough to study the menu and memorize all of the the dishes and even the ingredients, the recipe. No, you've got to eat the meal. You've got to share in the mystery of the new covenant. The road map is like a sign that points beyond itself to Christ himself in heaven, but on earth. And in the Mass, we have God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. I would like to just trace the narrative arc once again, from Holy Thursday through Good Friday and Holy Saturday to Easter Sunday, and just reflect with our listeners for a moment or two about what Jesus chose to do with his first day back from the dead. Because think about it, you look back on what Jesus had gone through in Holy Week, how he had been abandoned, he had been denied, he had been betrayed, he had been falsely accused, he had been tortured, and then finally executed and buried. I mean, that's a lot. you know. And so he descends into Hades, and on Easter Sunday morning, it's his first day back from the dead, and we could just ask ourselves, if we were Jesus, what would we choose to do on our first day back from the dead? Well, I, I could make a list. I could think about dropping in on my Blessed Mother. I would think about dropping in on Pontius Pilate and asking him to show me those hands and just see how clean you wash them indeed, you cynic, and then maybe drop in on Caiaphas or, or, or Annas and hover over the Sanhedrin and just tell them, I'm back, uh, and uh, things are not going to go easy for you unless you repent. But what our Lord chooses to do on his first day back from the dead is revealed in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, where that morning he meets up with two disciples who don't even recognize him. 
And after a brief exchange, what are you talking about? Oh, Jesus, Nazareth, we had hoped, but they had lost hope, and some women from our company came back, but, you know, some women. And you can just tell that there's still a wash in the sea of doubt when Jesus, you'd think, might offer some words of comfort and consolation, cheer up, it's not as dark as you think, trust me. But in, instead, he, he adds insult to injury. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things before entering into his glory? And they're thinking, no, stranger, what was necessary was that the enemies of the Christ should have been doing all of the suffering. You don't know anything except that he does go on, beginning with Moses and the law and all of the prophets, he interpreted them and all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, that's a seven-mile walk, but it's not a straight road. It's not a flat road. It's long and windy and hilly. So it would have taken hours and hours to go through the law and the prophets to show in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. That must have been the single most exciting Bible study ever in salvation history. I'm not sure why God did not allow recording technology to be invented yet, but there you have it. So the answer to the question what would you choose to do on your first day back from the dead, is supplied by Jesus himself. And on the surface, we might say, wow, he obviously has a case of misplaced priorities. You know, teaching Scripture to two people who don't even recognize him for hours and hours, mile after mile, even though their hearts are burning within them as he's opening the Scriptures, you'd think at one point he'd say, huh, doesn't this sound familiar? You know, they might say, where else have we heard this? But no, not until Emmaus, not until Jesus takes blessings, breaks, and gives. And that's the same fourfold action in Luke 24 that you find in Luke 22 when he instituted the Eucharist, but it's not a flashback for Clopas and his companion because they weren't numbered among the Twelve. This isn't a deja vu, like, where have we seen this before? This is how Jesus chooses to reveal himself, and in the process, this is how Jesus shows the fulfillment of the Old Covenant in the New is there in the Holy Eucharist. But just as St. Jerome said, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ, you could also then derive something of a corollary and say, ignorance of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist is a form of biblical illiteracy. It's ignorance of Scripture. And this is what Pope Benedict also indicated, that we need to understand the narrative arc of the Old and New Covenant to see how it fulfills it's fulfilled in Christ through the Holy Eucharist. But at the same time, we almost have to read backwards and go from the Eucharist to the New Testament back into the Old, because the Old Testament is like a story in search of an ending. It's unintelligible apart from the New and the fulfillment by Christ. But likewise, the New Testament apart from the Old is similarly unintelligible, because you're hearing about the fulfillment of all of these promises that you're barely aware of. And so what this enables us to do is to go back and recognize that Jesus didn't place too high of a priority on studying sacred scripture. No, we place too low of a priority. And to make this point even doubly obvious, when the two disciples circle back and return to Jerusalem and they find the eleven and they recount what had happened, who should suddenly appear on Easter Sunday late afternoon? Our Lord. And what does he do for the eleven? As we read at the second half, the finish point of Luke 24, he opens up the scriptures beginning with Moses, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the writings, all of the things concerning himself. So on his first day back from the dead, what does our Lord choose to do? Conduct two extensive scripture studies.
And these guys were not biblical ignoramuses. They'd grown up as devout Jews. They knew the scriptures perhaps better than we do. But the fact is, they didn't really know it. They knew it only as a map, a road map to heaven, but they didn't know the journey would be so torturous, so sir, it would it would be so challenging. And what this, I think, concludes, I mean, this is the point that I want to conclude with, that Peter and the Ten, just like Clopas and a companion, were not converted on Easter Sunday in the sense that we use that term. They had been followers of Jesus. They had been disciples. They had been striving to be faithful. They had been striving to study and learn from the Law and the Prophets, just as Jesus, the greatest rabbi, ever taught them, but not until the Paschal Mystery. And not apart from the Holy Eucharist can you understand sacred scripture, but look at the priority Jesus places upon the value and the power of understanding sacred scripture to put all of the pieces of the puzzle together. And so what we've got to do is recognize two things. Number one, conversion is not something that is over and done in the past. It's not what happened to me when I was a juvenile delinquent at 14 who found Jesus. It's not what happened to me over 35 years ago when I found the Catholic Church and I became a Catholic. It's what happened to me this morning when I arose from the dead of sleep and I had to awaken not just to natural life, but to supernatural life. It's what has to happen every day, as Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross daily. Cross is not a piece of jewelry. A cross is a heavy burden. But we always have the Holy Spirit to help us, and we have the Holy Eucharist to enable us to bear our crosses and to recognize we need to convert today as much as we did in every, every other previous day of our lives. And so for us as Catholics, conversion is ongoing. It's ever-deepening, but it needs to be not only lifelong, but daily. And if it's a cross, it's never going to be easy. It's always going to be difficult. We can't do it on our own, but we're not on our own. That's what the Holy Eucharist is for. And so I would just conclude by saying, secondly, besides ongoing conversion, we need the ongoing discipline of contemplative reading of sacred scripture. Not necessarily academic study, not necessarily academic degrees. That sometimes hinders more than it helps. But like little children who draw milk from Mother Church, we ought to draw the spiritual milk from sacred scripture and see how it is that the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed in the new. But we're not just connecting the old and the new. We're not just connecting sacred scripture with the Holy Eucharist. We're connecting scripture and the sacraments with our everyday lives, with our marriages and our families and our prayer life and our daily struggles with our sins our weaknesses, our addictions, and all of the things that remind us that we need the grace of conversion today as much as we've ever needed it before. Dr. Hahn, I like to think that I'm a relatively intelligent person, and I know that you are a very intelligent person. I've read many of your books, and I've seen your credentials, and yet I wonder how often you and I find ourselves in the same place as those disciples where Something is just very clearly before us, and here we are putting our, our feet in our mouths saying, well, wait a minute, I, I didn't think that's what you meant, Lord. I didn't, I didn't think that's what you were talking about, and how he still continues to open the Scriptures to us. So I would love to thank you for helping us out here over these past three days, as, again, as we begin this three-year process of Eucharistic 
revival here in the United States. And friends, I want to invite you, if you'd like to hear more, um, Dr. Hahn has a great resource for all of us in the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. If you go to stpaulcenter.com, that's stpaulcenter.com, resource after resource after resource on the scriptures, on our faith, videos, Bible studies, books, and even an event coming up, uh, the, the 2022 July Virtual Conference, Be Strong and Courageous. Dr. Han, I wonder if before we let you go, if you could just share a, a brief word about that, because I know that's something I'm looking forward to taking part in virtually in the next couple weeks. Yeah, it is our third Priests Conference of 2022. And it's the first time we've ever done three. We've been doing priest conferences as the St. Paul Center going back to 2005. We almost invariably end up with a waiting list, even though we have more than 200 priests. This year, we're going to have six to 700 priests going through these three retreats. And this is the third and final one at the Ogle Bay Resort in July of 2022. And invariably, what I hear from the priests at the end is, why did I never learn to read the Bible this way in seminary? We approach Scripture the more, the, more like the way you approach a cadaver as a med school student. You know, you, you dissect. It's an autopsy of sorts. And so what we want to do is to give them what they signed up for. They wanted sacred Scripture like Clopas and his companion got it. Did not our hearts burn within us? But it's not just for the clergy who are going to be present. It's also for those who are going to be watching, as you mentioned, online and this virtual conference be strong and courageous and let me also echo what you said about the saint paul center because we've been in existence for 21 years we have over 40 full-time co-workers and reading scripture from the heart of the church is our mission biblical literacy for lay people biblical fluency for clergy you know this is what it's all about but in especially the eucharist we have the thing called the real presence project you can go online at stpaulcenter.com and find the Bible and the Mass, 10 Lessons I Did on DVD. You can also find Promise and Fulfillment, and a number of other talks that I've given in parishes that you have focusing on the Eucharist. But I also should say, just to wrap it up, that uh, what we have been doing together in these three days is what, I would be do what I've been doing for the last 20 years or so in what I call the Eucharistic Trilogy, my three favorite books out of the 40 to 50 that I've done. The first one is The Lamb's Supper. The second one is the fourth cup, and the third one is consuming the Word. And what I've been trying to do in our conversation these last three sessions is to summarize and synthesize what I feel like our Lord gave me. You know, and it, it, it's fun to share, but it must have been fun for that donkey to carry Jesus into Jerusalem. Just make sure, donkey, you don't forget who they're applauding for. You know, and that's why I would also conclude by saying, please, please pray for me, for my marriage, for our six kids, for our 21 grandkids, especially for Father Jeremiah, and for all of my brothers and sisters who work with us at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Because, Adam, if all of your listeners pray for me and for all of us, that's more than sufficient supernatural payback. Indeed. And, and if I could join in on that, I will be praying for you and, and listeners I Again, please pray for Dr. Hahn and the staff at the St. Paul Center, and pray for your priests and your pastors and, and for us here at the radio station. We all need your prayers to continue this good work uh, of forming ourselves, because much like you listeners, I'm on the road, too. I'm, I'm not the expert. I am just walking 
this journey with you in faith. And Dr. Scott Hahn, I cannot thank you enough for taking this time over the past three days with us. And I look forward to all of the great things that continue to come out from the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. We're going to pause here to take a break. Stay tuned.